healthy sized avatars, exercise proclivity, inventor avatars, more creativity, gendered avatars, self stereotyping, antisocial avatars, negatively griping. The list goes on. Effect size is relatively strong for a media effect phenomenon. And if you want these details and stats, I know that there's a published meta analysis. I wrote it. You're listening to SpartyCast. Hello and welcome to SpartyCast. Today we have a special episode, a talk that I gave at Carnegie Mellon University on April 1st. It's taken me a little while to process this file. Um, The talk is called, The Metaverse Has Arrived. Hello, classes in VR. Goodbye, Zoom fatigue. April Fools. And it was a rare opportunity to give uh, an April Fool's talk. Uh, One of those statements is actually true. I'll give you a hint. It's my classes in VR. I talk a bit about doing in in headset class as well as being in the classroom and and with my students together. Uh, It's all under this metaverse umbrella. In some ways, it represents the culmination of many of the topics that I've been thinking about through SpartyCast over these past months. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you don't judge me for copping out and not doing an actual SpartyCast episode. Um, And we've got more of those to come, more cop outs to come. But I also encourage you to check out our TikTok channel, which, uh, which is full of exciting meme worthy entertain edutainment all right um thank you spartycast listeners and i I hope you enjoy this talk uh, whether you listen to it or watch it our speaker today uh robbie rattan does the kind of really interesting interdisciplinary work that leads him to work with all sorts of different departments i think i counted like seven different disciplines that you work in Um, over at Michigan State, where he is an associate professor and also the the AT&T scholar or there there are two of us. There are two. Okay, so uh, one of only two (laughs) AT&T scholars. He is interested in some of the same questions that we as an HCI department are interested in, right? How do media technologies, right, like avatars or agents like Zoom, VR, right? We're going to be talking about things. How do they change the way people relate to one another? And how can we design these technologies in a way that improves the outcomes related to human flourishing, which might be, for example, educational. We're gonna hear about some of that work today, but it could also include things like equity, inclusion, motivation. And again, these are all things that are really aligned with the research uh, outcomes that we in this department are interested in. So I'm extremely excited to hear what Robbie has to say. Before that, I need to tell you two fun facts. So fun fact number one is that Robbie co-runs my favorite conference in the world, Meaningful Play, which is back on for October 2022. Yes. Submission deadline in June. Submission deadline in June. And uh, COVID permitting, I'm going to be there, and I am actively inviting all of you to join me. It's close enough to drive. We can take a road trip and uh, have an awesome time playing with our research together. The second fun fact 
is that unfortunately, we did not prepare for this, but Robbie often lectures on a skateboard while skating around the classroom. So I'm gonna turn over to him and leave you with that image. Uh, I apologize, Robbie, that we did not provide you with a skateboard, but we did provide you with an audience that's really excited to hear your talk. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Jess. Um... I really regret not bringing my skateboard. Uh, I did bring my whole family and my parents from North Carolina came up to meet us and I've got all the kids here. Um, I, I think it's so wonderful to be able to show families and children what we do as academics because uh, it's hard enough to understand what people in a different department might do. Um, so that, that's my segue to saying it's a great honor to speak to you here at CMU and also in an HCI department coming from the field of communication with a background in media psychology. Um, we don't do things the same way all of the time. And so I would really love your feedback. You guys are the ones who I think interpret the types of data, similar types of data that people from my field deal with, but in ways that actually lead to the building of stuff, right? The actual kind of construction, uh, the tangible creation of materials that is you know, a bit far from people like me. We're a little more abstract um, <laughs> for, for what it's worth. And, and I think, you know, there of course are complementary values to what we provide as scholars, but, uh, but please do feel free to give me feedback and help me interpret what I'm talking about today for the production of new technologies. Um, other things I want to mention is preamble. Okay, so the metaverse has arrived. Hello, classes in VR. Goodbye, Zoom fatigue. April Fools. How often do I get to give a talk on April 1st? That's, that's the best. So I had to make a, a corny joke out of this. And I will say this is two lies and a truth mostly, uh, and, and we can debate that if you want. And I'm gonna go, try to go slow on this talk. There's a lot of content. So feel free, speak up, raise your hand, let's let's interact. That's how I like to run class. I really wish I had a skateboard. Uh, I could like roll up to you and yeah, please. I'll just say, if I put my hand up, I'm gonna be uh, representing our Zoom participants. Oh, nice. Someone on Zoom has a question or wants to participate. Oh, please. Um, I will pretend to be back. Yes. As I say in my class, which is, Students in class, sometimes in VR headsets, plus students on Zoom, sometimes in VR headsets. I say, okay, Zoomers. Uh, as in, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, sometimes it falls flat, but. <laughs> so one of, these, one of these things is kind of true. I, I think I just gave it away. Hello, classes in VR. And not just my class, there's a class at Stanford that was taught not long ago by Jeremy Balenson. And then I just learned that Erica here took a class, or sorry, helped or, uh, design a class in Com in VR, students meeting twice a week in VR. Um, so that's awesome. This is happening, guys. The metaverse has come to an education environment near you. Um, but, but wait, has it really though? And that's, that's what I think is not true. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then, um, and then we'll talk about Zoom fatigue. And I, it might seem like I'm jumping between these topics and like, where's the, where's the common thread? But there is one on the very last slide where I talk about how I'm trying to synthesize all of these things. So <laughs> we'll, try, we'll try to show a common thread though. So what will the metaverse be? Um, I would argue that it will be an interconnected network of immersive virtual worlds where people embody avatars to work, socialize and play together. Does anyone want to comment on that definition? Do you like that definition? Are we missing something? We're not really talking Web3 here. Please. Why doesn't it have to be avatars? Why? Yeah, that's a good point. 
I guess because if we're socially with each other, you need some form of self-representation. Um, so that's the first reason. The second reason is because I wanted it in the definition so I could justify my research on avatars. But, <laughs> so so it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair point. I, I guess it's, uh, avatars aren't integral to the definition. That's a good point. Um, other thoughts on this definition? Please. I'm interested in uh, how much immersion is required for this to be immersed because you seem to be exciting um, things on the spectrum of mixed reality. I agree, and it depends on how you define immersive. If to be immersed in one environment, does that mean you have to be kind of removed from the other environments. And if that's the case, then certainly I would argue that AR will be metaverse enabled. So I, the reason I go with immersive virtual environments is because I'm trying to differentiate between um, the, the flat screen social media that we have today and the social media that involves tracking head movements, which could be in AR as well. Can we think of a better term that like than immersive? Do you have any suggestions, anyone or Jess? Yeah, well, I mean, so I would argue, for example, for many of us, Facebook is extremely immersive, right? Or Twitter, you can just scroll endlessly and lose all sense of your body. And I think it's that word embodied that is doing a lot of work in your definition. Okay. That when you say immersive, a lot of what you mean is, is actually taking some sense of your physicality with you yeah. into the experience and not just, you know, reducing yourself to a pair of eyes and a pointing finger. I think that's a really good point uh, from like the work on transportation where you can read a book and be immersed, transported, right? And that's, that's a book and text. We just had Melanie Green as a guest speaker um, at, uh, at MSU recently. So we talked about this. So I would agree, yeah, immersive maybe isn't the best word. Embodiment helps us out, though I can have my students in my VR class, but sitting on their flat screen, playing it like a game. So they're not immersed in the same way if I'm, if I'm trying to go for the, that sense of presence. So it's hard, it's hard to define. Uh, but, but the interconnected part, I think, is the linchpin and the reason why I argue that we're not at the metaverse level yet. Does anyone know what I might mean by that or want to speculate or, or you've already thought about this? So for it to be the metaverse, I think it has to be like the internet. It needs to be a, a network of many different places that we can easily traverse. The internet isn't you know, a bunch of walled gardens of websites. I mean, it is in a way, but, um, but it's easy to navigate. So a metaverse browser uh, where we can just jump into your avatar and go between different immersive or not immersive or whatever you want to call it, virtual environments, um, that feels like the metaverse to me to a greater extent. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't go into that too much in this talk, though. Um, I really am interested in this topic, right? The relationship between blockchain and crypto and NFTs and how that will facilitate this decentralized. So, so the argument I make right here um, is that the metaverse will be decentralized. I often get the question, what's so different about second or about the metaverse now from Second Life? And they're disconnected. So they'll, it'll be decentralized, but still in interconnected because of blockchain and, and um, crypto. Can someone explain that to us? Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Do you want to, like, what's your understanding of how that might facilitate decentralization and interconnectedness? So maybe the best way to think about it is you play a game. And by playing a game, you, you gain some kind of 
it's not necessarily Ethereum, but you can some kind of in-game currency. Yeah. And then you can use it to uh, purchase NFTs or other sorts of things you might want from other kinds of properties that the company owns, but which are separate from the current gaming versus your parking. So that facilitates a connection between different types of portable versions. Absolutely. Um, taking it to a step, taking it a step further. So your example, I think, if I understood it properly, was you're playing a game, you're getting some currency. It's it's crypto, meaning the record of having it is on a blockchain, which is essentially a public ledger that lots of computers are sharing. Um, once you have that crypto, you can use it to buy stuff from another game that the company owns. But I would argue that it. And, and I think some people believe that it will be even more decentralized than that. It doesn't have to be owned by that one company. It, you can go from Facebook's workspaces over to Epic Games with the same avatar, with the same assets, at least in theory, right? We're not quite there yet. And that's why we're not, uh, the metaverse hasn't arrived. Um, but we will, we will, of course, pay attention and there will be many different applications for human communication, education, work, et cetera, in virtual spaces. They will become increasingly interconnected. I like to think of the time now, and maybe my dad can help me with the exact date. The time now for the metaverse is like, what, 94 for the internet? Oh, uh, yeah. Probably. OK. So you were working at Bell Labs. The internet was part of your daily work routine, right? I remember when I made snow crash for flight reading on my lab. <laughs> that was 1987. Okay. Well, but it wasn't written until 92. Uh, yeah, 92, that's right. But, but you started in 87. But uh, there, were, there were a few books in that genre which were popular at that point. Yeah. Um, was one of those. Neuromancer. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So cyberspace, the metaverse, it was all an idea that, that we had back then. People we used to call it telepresence. Telepresence, yeah, absolutely. Feeling connected to other people through media. That's what the metaverse will do. That's why it's interesting. That's why when I read Snow Crash in 92, and you bought me the book, I think, um, in 2005, uh, I was inspired to pursue graduate studies in virtual reality effects. I worked in Jeremy Balenson's lab, the Virtual Human Interaction Laboratory, running studies where people interacted with avatars or agents, and we had to mimic head movements at a certain delay or include face morphs of the participant's face, and then we looked at outcomes relating to persuasion or willingness to vote for a candidate, those kinds of things. Um, I thought that was really cool. I thought Second Life was pretty cool in 2000. Uh, six, I almost quit being a grad student to try to go work for Linden Labs. I'm so glad they didn't accept my application. <laughs> I mean, they're doing okay, but, um, but I, I really do enjoy this topic. And I, I've never called myself a metaverse researcher until it was hip, right? Like when Facebook changed its name. But all this time, I've really been studying avatars and VR um, in networked contexts. So, but, but I want the metaverse now, as uh, Pazzy and Bobo back there, my four-year-olds might say. And if you really want it now, I would argue there are some apps that can get us as close as possible to it. Uh, please feel free to share any that you would add to this list or that you endorse or that you hate even. Um, so Ready Player Me. Anyone heard of Ready Player Me? Nice. Um, have you used it? Uh, yeah, I've been using it myself. I've like, looked at it. And okay. Things. Sure. And uh, how about you? I've never used it, but I used it. Do you remember the name. Ready Player Me. Yeah. Just like Ready Player One, the movie, right? Their name for that. 
If there's any app that I think is better suited to facilitate that interconnected metaverse experience, it's Ready Player Me. They have partnered with hundreds of companies to allow you to use the same avatar file format essentially across these different virtual worlds. Please. So then you have an avatar wardrobe. It's like your wallet, right? It's there in your wallet. You can easily switch between them, but you don't need to think like, oh, which avatars do I have in this space and which are in that space? Like I'm having a work meeting with some people over in the Facebook world and now I'm going to have a work meeting over there, same avatar. But if I'm going to play a game in Fortnite, I probably wouldn't use that same avatar, but it would be nice to be able to kind of be able to select for it in a different game. So I think we'll think less about the company that's uh, the platform and think more about our, our own identity through an app like Ready Player Me. And it's super easy. Guys, you could pull out your phone right now, jump in a web browser. You don't even have to log in. I promise I don't own any stock. You don't have to log in. You take a picture of yourself and literally in less than 10 minutes, you can be in that avatar in VR chat in, a, in an Oculus Quest headset through, you know, if you know the, the mechanism for onboarding. It's, it's great. Um, Engage, who's heard of Engage besides Erica? Anyone, anyone? So this is the platform that Jeremy Valenson uh, recommended to run classes in VR. It's a, it's a paid platform, unfortunately, if you want more than five people in a virtual world together. And I'll show you a video in a minute uh, so you can see what the user experience is like uh, for my students. How about Hubs, Mozilla Hubs? Few people, quite a few people, yeah. So Hubs is great. It is so easy. You generate a link in the moment that you can share with anyone. It's a virtual world. You can navigate it in a VR headset or on a flat screen computer or on your phone. Same link, super easy to, to just create a world and be there with other people. The link isn't exactly persistent and the worlds aren't super customizable. Getting your avatar from Ready Player Me into that world takes a few extra steps. You kind of have to download the file or copy. It's, I think it's called a GLC um, link that goes to the Ready Player Me service. So it's easy. It's the best place to try the, the metaverse or a potential metaverse application uh, for people who have no experience. But it's not the best place, I think, for supporting um, larger scale social environments. VR chat, VR chat, a few people. It's a game, you can download it on Steam. And I think it's known for diversity in avatar representation. And I don't just mean DEI, equity and inclusion. You can be any race or gender or other human social category. You can be any size being you want. You can have like a little lobster playing a immersive Among Us with you know the Hulk. And, and so it's a pretty cool space for exploration. Um, it's pretty flexible. My students love it uh, as a place where they actually just go and hang out with friends. Uh, you've probably all heard of Hor the Horizon Suite, Horizon Worlds, Workrooms, and Venues. Has anyone tried it? Oh, man. Horizon Workspaces is clunky, but it's cool. You feel like you're sitting there in a virtual meeting at a virtual desk and you're trapped in your seat. <laughs> it's like, oh, I want to get out of this seat. Um, you, can, you can pass through to your keyboard though. That's really cool, right? Imagine you're sitting at your tiny little uh, laptop and then you want to have five big screens, one for your code, one for your references, one for the paper you're writing. Boom, you've got a VR headset, you can do that. But you can do that way better in Immersed. Um, I'm not just saying that because I'm friends with 
a developer there who's an MSU alum. Um, that kind of came out of my interest in this, but I've tried many different platforms. Immerse is the cool one that I think will really help with productivity in VR. And you can meet with other people and share your screen. Uh, it feels a little bit more flexible to me than workrooms. Though none of these are perfect solutions quite yet. Decentraland, lots of people heard? Never? No, okay, this is not the, the legitimate logo, nor would I think Disney allow this to be in any sort of um, paid presentation context, but, um, but it is the most popular place to buy snake oil, I mean virtual land. <laughs> You've probably heard of the virtual real estate boom hundreds of thousands of dollars for a parcel of virtual land. That blows my mind. I mean, it's like buying server space that's, I guess, geographically tied to a region, which is why one place might have more value than another, but it's, it's digital. So like, can you really trust that this is going to be the hub? Fine, Snoop Dogg is there to stay because he's making so much money because all the land near him is going for a lot of money. Um, and it is decentralized, so you might expect you, you might be able to trust uh, the potential for market forces as opposed to a greedy corporate entity uh, to guide the development of this space. But so it's one to watch, definitely one to watch. Ironically, though, everyone's talking about the metaverse and, and virtual land. You can buy NFTs in this place. You can't actually use a VR headset in Decentraland. It, it drives me bonkers that uh, that there's a conflation between this user experience of the metaverse, which is virtually based, it's immersive, if you want to call it that, um, and then this like web three future of the internet kind of distributed uh, free for all that's happening. And, um, and I guess we expect the two to meet, but, but actually they don't, in, especially in, in apps like this. All right, moving right along. Avatars, why do I care about avatars? And how are we on time? Good. That clock is right, right? Okay. So um, avatars, the term avatar comes from Hinduism. It means descent, a god to an earthly form. It was also popularized in Snow Crash, right along with the term metaverse. Though it has uh, earlier video game origins, Ultima, Quest of the Avatar, the idea there was that it's not just a character, it's you. You are the god controlling this, this being in the game. And so uh, the intent was to make you feel more identification with your character in the game. Um, so I like to define avatars as a mediated representation. So it's not the self, it's never the self. It's a representation through some medium. It's not always digital. It can be a robot. I mean, it can be a human if you're a god. Uh, it can be, I don't know, a human if you're an alien. Uh, but I said a human user. But I, I do want to change this definition at some point in the future to an intelligent entity. Because we could also imagine a, a smart enough AI having a representation of itself that would be its avatar. But the reason that, at least people in communication, because we sit around and, and argue about abstract definitions all the time. So the reason that we try to say human users because we really want to distinguish from agents. It's not you know, an NPC, non-playable character, the thing you ask for a quest 
from in a game. You, you don't want to call that an avatar. You want to imply that there's a smart being behind it. And usually that smart being is a human. I guess a dog or a chimpanzee could have an avatar as well. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if there's research on that. So it's gotta, so it's gotta be a representation. It's gotta be human um, or at least intelligent. It's gotta facilitate interactions with other stuff, other users, the environment or objects. That's our definition of an avatar. And you know, Avatar The Last Airbender, Jake Sully, The Blue Alien, those in some ways are, are uh, pivots on the definition. In other ways, they are true to the origins. But why do avatars matter? Well, I would say it's your outfit in the metaverse. I mean, literally, your avatar can have different outfits, but then you can have different avatars. That avatar wardrobe, that, that wallet that you carry around in your, in your um, cryptocurrency format. Hi, Bobo. Um, so, yes. Why, though, do avatars matter? I would argue uh, they matter, well, for many reasons, but the Proteus effect is my one true theoretical love. This is what I've been studying for most, I would argue, of um, my time as an assistant professor and then going into a, as an associate professor. I'm still very interested in it. Um, and so let me tell you about it. Avatars are malleable. Right, you can have a wardrobe of them. You can customize them, make them look differently uh, depending on your mood. Right, so like the Greek god Proteus, who was a shapeshifter. So that's where the name comes from. Uh, this this effect was discovered or coined by Nick Yee and Jeremy Balenson, also at the VHIL lab. I was just a master student at the time, so I wasn't involved in this research, but I saw it happening at the ground stage. So I thought that was that was great access for me to realize how. Uh, cool this was. But this was in 2006, 2007. So people act in ways that are consistent with avatar characteristics. That's, that's the basic tenet of the Proteus effect. So if you have certain avatar characteristics, such as height or age or attractiveness, um, children, please sit down. <laughs> I know it's boring. Guys, remember we play video games? Imagine if you were playing a game with a taller avatar, you would actually, can you? No, not right now. But if you were, if you had a taller avatar, you might negotiate more aggressively. That's what the research suggests. If you have an avatar that's more or less attractive, that will affect your social confidence. Both in VR, it'll affect how close you stand to people. The more attractive avatar, you'll stand closer to the people you're talking to. After VR, you'll choose more attractive dating partners on a website, according to uh, another study. If you see your avatar gain or lose weight while it's eating or exercising or you're eating or exercising in that environment, it will affect your eating and exercise behaviors. And that one, uh, with the exercise, we found that effect, not we, uh, Jesse Fox, Jeremy Balenson, and one more author found the effect lasted for up to a week. So people who saw themselves in the avatar changing body shape during exercise, exercised more in the following week than people who saw the avatar with another face. Go ahead, please. Is that that talks about like what motivates someone to choose or customize their avatar in certain ways? Yes, there is. And that in in some ways is related, but it's a slightly different angle on this question of the Proteus effect. Um, the Proteus effect has usually been studied in contexts where we assign these characteristics to people and they don't realize that they're in one condition of you know, a, an, an experiment with random assignment. So, uh, so that influence on their behavior is not a customization that they've chosen. That said, if we, guide people to, and, and I'm an experimentalist. So um, I would prefer, because if you find, oh, P, there was a study and this was 
publishes a Proteus effect study by Nick Yee, the person who found it, and we rejected it from our meta-analysis because it looked at the height of avatars in World of Warcraft and some measure of social confidence, um, but that's a correlation. We don't know, did they customize taller avatars because of an underlying psychological characteristic, or did they happen to customize this taller avatar and that influenced their behavior? But we do find that when we guide people to customize avatars in certain ways, so um, I tell my students in one study to customize an actual self-avatar like you actually are, or an ideal self-avatar, or an ought self-avatar. In the student study, we found the ideal self-avatar and ought self-avatar users communicated more with other students in the, in the forums. We just did like a basic kind of text and semantic analysis. I don't think we found semantic differences, but we found that they did worse in the class. It wasn't a huge difference. And we did uh, balance assignment to condition. So I think it was ethical. So everyone had all the conditions, um, but they did worse on the exam after they had been in the ideal or odd self avatar or, uh, than the actual self avatar. Few different potential reasons there, like maybe we were priming uh, ideals that were unachievable. Maybe their ideals don't have anything to do with schoolwork. <laughs> so they, we, maybe we accidentally primed like an ideal social self. So that's why they communicated more, but they didn't work as hard on the schoolwork. So avatar customization and why people choose it and how it might relate to the Proteus effect, those are, those are rich topics. They're hard to study in an, in a, a, an experimental way, um, but People love customization. The one clear answer to your question is when you allow people to customize compared to just giving them an avatar, they enjoy the experience more, they feel more identification, uh, they experience more presence in the virtual environment, all of those things are kind of enhanced. So um, that's a really good question. All right, so we did a meta-analysis of this phenomenon. Are there any, oh, my favorite one. Um, when, and this one's been replicated multiple times. If you give people inventor avatars, you know, lab coats and gray hair and glasses uh, compared to street clothes avatars, they are more creative in a brainstorming task, both during and after avatar use. That's so cool, right? Um, they come up with more ideas. Maybe they persist more. Why? Why is this happening? Uh, theoretically, Balancin and Yi argue that it's coming from self-perception theory which is the notion that we don't always understand what our attitudes are. So we imagine ourselves from a third person perspective and we observe our behaviors and then we infer our own attitudes. So it's like, oh, I went to the Mexican restaurant. I ate the salsa. I must like spicy food. So next time I'm going to order the salsa, right? Even if I don't realize or I don't remember that it's kind of nudged to the Mexican restaurant by the experimenter or, or my family members or whatever it is. So, um, so self-perception theory. Now, when I see the avatar representing me, I attribute the characteristics, not necessarily behavioral characteristics, but the identity-related characteristics to my self-perception, to my cognitive schema that I associate with myself. Then as I go off and I do things, that cognitive schema that's salient in my self-concept in those moments uh, influences my behavior. That's how we might explain theoretically what's going on there. Um, so, and, and at the time we ran this meta-analysis, there were 45 studies. Now, I think we're all probably up to 55. We've run a new meta-analysis, which is not published yet, though I think we're presenting it at ICA this year, uh, where we find that the effect is stronger for 
VR-based studies compared to those that used a flat screen. We also tried to do an uncanny valley measure. You guys know the uncanny valley? So when I, yeah, so the, um, we only had images of the avatars from the studies. We didn't have the original avatars. So we had uh, participants rate the images. We didn't find that uncanny valley or, un, sorry, avatars that were perceived as more uncanny were in studies with lower effect sizes. That was our hypothesis, but we didn't actually conduct that study very well because we didn't have the actual avatars. So that's that's an area where I think, I mean, the question is, why is the Proteus effect strong in some studies and not in others? Why do we find it? Um, and so that's one area for research. That's not actually where I'm going to go. Let's go back to VR class, though. Let's get back to the metaverse. This is my class. Tell me the point you were just making about multitasking. As someone with like ADHD, like sometimes it helps you focus more. Sorry, I'm going to go to full screen on this. As someone with like ADHD, like sometimes it helps you focus more. If you like onto the class up, we're able to kind of just just mess around with the different features in the world and like spawn different projects. <laughs> I mean, I just like two years to break out and check my email or multitask because I was invested in the environment that I'm in here. Yeah, I, yeah, I need to do something yeah. with my hands, but like I'm, I'm doing stuff in the actual thing that we're doing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can my hands around in real life during instruction, but because I'm in here, I can keep myself occupied. <laughs> This large pillow, though, is one of the important discussion. What is this thing? And are these avatars right here, guys, based on our discussion today? This this man in the black shirt? Is he an avatar? No. No. Look at the inside of his face. She's so happy. Your tuition dollars are paying for your experience here. So, is this is this better than Zoom? Like, speaking of tuition, do you think your parents could be convinced? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Why? Yeah, Why? There's no doubt. Because I feel like the interaction was so much higher. Yeah, a lot more. Yeah, interaction. It's hard. I was out of the that. I got some. I got some. Yeah, more stimulated in an environment like this. Therefore, we are more apt to remember this experience and as such, the things that we're learning. But if we're in a boring Zoom meeting, you don't really remember anything after like, the first 10 minutes. Exactly. So it's just like a point, I can that more interesting than the lecture. I mean, this is much more interesting than it's true math class. Is that the real time up there on that clock? So how long have we been in VR together? Since uh, about, about 11 hours, hours. We'll hours. we've been in here for an hour together. Wow, does it feel like the time went by pretty fast? Yeah, this is the big difference though. Taking Zoom classes like during lockdown, all the days kind of just blended together because you're looking yeah. at the same background, the same like UI every single day. This, at least you're going to have a differentiation what you see every single time if you go to a different environment or experience yeah. something different that will actually stimulate your brain and force you to remember what's going on. Yeah. All right. I did get all of uh, my students' permission to show that video and couple um, couple notes there. So this is, this is one of our, I just don't want this to play. This is one of our very first classes in VR, all of us in VR together. 
I realized after a few classes, I shouldn't give them all permission to spawn objects like <laughs> everywhere. But I, I, that's a really good point though from the beginning, right? Like you need a fidget. You need to multitask sometimes. It's hard to be there fully uh, attentive. So I let them draw in 3D and I let them spawn objects uh, within reason away from the main screen. Please. I'm saying, when you say VR. Yes. Like, did you issue them all cardboards for their phone? Yeah, it was um, Quest 2s. So I bought 16 Oculus Quest 2s. And then for the students who didn't have them, I had 16 students. I bought 16. I only had to give away eight. Eight of them already had Quest 2 headsets. They're 300 bucks. They're like gamer tools, right? Um, so we've got this, because we're a, a College of Communication Arts and Sciences and a Media and Information Department, we've got a bunch of production classes. So students check out uh, video cameras and lighting all the time. So I was able to just put my headsets in there and have that get managed centrally, which was really nice. So were they on their home networks or on their um, In this video, they were on their home networks. That's a great question, because that's the, the bottleneck, right? Um, though now, I, when we had started the semester, we were fully online for the first couple of weeks. And that made audio management a lot easier. Now when I, audio is the worst part of trying to teach class in VR, uh, as yeah, you guys know. So when, when I'm in person now, but I let some of my students stay home because of COVID, like if you don't want to come, that's fine, you zoom in. I've got people in, in person on the great network and they're speaking. So we actually do all Zoom audio, but that means we have one mic and so then the students who are not near the mic aren't heard as well by the people who are only hybrid. The best solution for that is to go all VR audio, but then you're in the classroom with people and you're hearing them and you're getting a feedback loop. So I don't think there's an easy solution besides, but next year we're actually moving to California for a year. So I'm teaching all of my classes remotely in VR. So then I force my students to be in, in VR fully, no hybrid, please. Question then. Um, first, I have not used the latest Oculus. I know in previous generations, the Quest? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in previous generations, I became violently nauseous. And I don't know if your students encountered any physiological effects. Most of them have not uh, mentioned simulator sickness at an acute level. Um, I only have one woman in my class, and she's one of my RAs, and she's like amazing. She loves this topic. Um, so, that's why she took the class. And unfortunately, there, there is a gender uh, distinction there that's um, an equity and inclusion issue. So even though some of this research is designed toward reducing Zoom, the gender equity issues in Zoom, we have the same issues in VR. But refresh rate is much better in Quest 2. So I would argue that sim, sim sickness will be lower. But uh, to uh, like spoiler alert, um, I'm I'll make the argument that maybe VR and avatars can be used to reduce the uh, inequity, at least with respect to gender in Zoom fatigue, because avatars will reduce some of the uh, gendered characteristics that cause them. Unfortunately, though, e even if we reduce the inequity, VR is fatiguing. It's really tiring, like an hour in VR with my students. I did that a few times after um, that first meeting and they started telling me like, Robbie, we need breaks. Like we can't do this. It's, you know, it's a screen strapped to your face. Uh, so I don't see an easy answer here yet. And you're asking all the right questions to help us get toward it. Yeah, for sure, please. 
the class is on VR. Yes, and that's one of the reasons it works, right? Yeah. Uh, next semester, I'm teaching the class on VR in VR, and then I'm also teaching an avatar psychology class in VR. So we're kind of I'm trying to move away from that because I'd love to have a consortium of faculty, you know, across the world who teach in VR on any subject, and we can, we can support that mode of teaching. I think it can be way better than Zoom. I also think it could be better than in person. On on certain subjects, um, but it depends on what you're doing. So please. It can be, but I find it's better to turn it off because my students they just want to like teleport all over the space, and so they'll be close, they'll be far, and I do too. I, I can't just sit. I I'm a fidgeter, so um so I turn off 3D audio for all in VR so we can hear each other at equal sound. As the host, I can manage the setting for the whole room. Um, I don't know. There might actually be a personalized setting as well in Engage, and it really depends on the platform. So in Spatial, Erica, do you remember? I would turn it off for everybody. You would turn off 3D audio because you want people to be able to hear each other. So that means that it's a terrible environment to have a large kind of mingling uh, social because you can't get into subgroups unless you are together. Have you guys used um, GatherTown? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great example of a strong effort at spatial audio, <laughs> but still, it's it's so awkward. It's so clunky. Um, yeah, that's where we do our uh, NSF PI meetings. <laughs> it's just like it's cool. We're experimenting with it, but it's not uh, not going super smoothly. Okay, so Zoom fatigue. Um, so equity is a major issue for Zoom across multiple studies because of this Zoom fatigue issue. It's 50, uh, Zoom fatigue is 15% higher on average for women than men. In my study with 600, and 600 or so participants, we found it to be 11% higher for Asian than white participants. Um, and that's at the average. If you look at the people in the top 20 percentile, 20th percentile of Zoom fatigue, it's three times as likely for women than men. We didn't find other race differences in our study, but other studies with bigger samples have found those race differences, though sampling was a bit different. Ours was uh, essentially a randomized sample from a survey platform. Um, some of the studies with thousands of participants have been self-selection. You know, the study's been advertised on TV, and so people who are maybe interested in the topic go there. So we don't know exactly where... Well, we know there's a problem. We just don't know exactly who uh, who for whom the effect is most detrimental. One likely cause, in, well, in, addition to, um, in addition to just eye strain and being stagnant and having big faces in your face and all these things being unnatural, in addition to those psychological factors, the social psych psychological factor that is likely relevant here is negative self-focused attention. Self-video, looking at yourself four hours at a time, reminds you of how you're presenting to other people. We included in our study a measure of facial dissatisfaction. So the less happy you are with how your face looks, uh, that mediated the differences for gender and for this one racial difference um, on Zoom fatigue. And overall, uh, this, this is, these are significant indirect effects. 0.15 R squared, it's not the biggest effect, Right, um, but it is still 
notable. Please. Uh, sorry, I was to run, but before, so I want to run. Yeah. One question would be: um, Did you or did you check who actually turned off their video? I know that my Zoom experience, but and I completely agree with that. In fact, it's so much better to just turn on or not off. My turn off. Yeah. Did you control for that, or did you kind of have any? I think there? I think we asked about it, and it's really rare. Yeah. Most people don't do it. Yeah. I can't do it. I'm too much of a narcissist. I have to see myself. And I wonder, I, I would be interested in uh, what psychological correlates there are to like discomfort with not seeing yourself versus yeah, seeing yourself, right? right? Like self-monitoring is a psychological construct. We said, so maybe high self-monitors prefer it. Absolutely, yeah. please for not self-monitoring or for failures of self-monitoring are yeah. not evenly distributed. So that's a good point too. Yeah. yeah. Please. Yeah, I was just gonna speak as an Asian woman. So mm -hmm. negative self-focused attention percent as caused. Um, I was wondering or not wondering, I just want to share my experience. Please uh, do. Yeah. Thank who, you. Um I've aged and started I'm aware. Uh, personally, having the video on is like a form of body doublet for me. So I use that. I actually think I have a Zoom fatigue. Like I'm like energized by seeing myself. So I actually use like when I'm not on Zoom, I use like a mirror to like get my brain like high, like functioning mode. Yeah. And then I'm kind of nervous. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I do it on purpose. So I just sure. It's like practicing your your speech in the mirror. Right. So that's kind of how I use. It is kind of narcissistic. <laughs> um, no, that was just a self-deprecating joke, not at all a, <laughs> a, a general statement. I think I think though self uh, self monitoring is at least theorized um, in social interactions, and we're including it in a follow up study. Um, so you might be a high self monitor. You just want to know how you're presenting, and that helps you get energized. That could be correlated with other factors, um, demographics, and otherwise. But um, please. Okay. We use the platform Prolific. And so I think it's, you know, a quasi representative, but not really <laughs> adult you sample. Either, so I don't actually buy that their samples are representative. Um, I, you know, because at the end of the day, they've got their pool. I think when you buy the representative sample, it just means that they're matching the characteristics. Yeah. So uh, like it's people on the prolific platform who know about uh, how to make money in this way, which I have to assume is correlated with education access and high-speed internet and uh, social networks where people. So, so I, I mean, that's a caveat that we, we mentioned in all of these studies. I don't know, do you prefer MTurk or another platform? Uh, it's always a problem. I think you, there is one, one problem that I'm trying to get around is how do we get away from people who are tech workers by nature? Mm -hmm. That's exactly the zombie platform. <laughs> Um, I am pleasantly surprised that I see also a diversity both on Demsburg and on Prolific. And mm -hmm. I'm so both in my research. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, it's a good question because, um, and also I think it depends how it's advertised, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, did you, did you say this with the survey about Zoom or how did you get it? We did, and we required that participants had, um, I think, had at least two Zoom meetings in that day prior to the survey. Dad? I have a suggestion for follow-up research. Please. 
So a number of companies use what I call digital mirrors. Mm -hmm. So you, you can just go stand in front of a digital mirror, you can try out different clothes. Yeah. So I think, I think Amazon makes these arguments. What if you went to put a bunch of people in front of a digital mirror and all of them would see themselves as this middle-aged white guy? And, and put them through that process and then see if that eliminates the gender racism. So that is the solution that I cannot advocate for <laughs> because people love customizing avatars to represent themselves, right? When we, when I, the conclusion on many of my studies is like, oh, if people are reminded of stereotypes, stereotype threat, their performance is diminished. We can use avatars to solve that problem. But wait a minute, we don't want everyone to, you know, be homogenous because people want to be themselves. So customize. So that's why I thought, okay, we can customize people to represent an actual self. You asked me that question, right? After so if you customize people to be an actual self, then you'll trigger stereotypes. If you customize um, avatars, maybe to represent other elements of your identity that are not stereotyped, then it could serve as a buffer against stereotype threat while still allowing people to, uh, to express themselves and enjoy that avatar experience. And we have one study where we, we do have some support for that. I forget if I report that in the next slide, maybe. Let's see it in a moment. Um, I was looking at it as potentially reporting it. Um, so yeah, so one possible solution is avatars in virtual meetings, but I don't think they should all be middle-aged white guys, but we don't know exactly what they should be. Um, and maybe this, this could, but avatars in general could reduce self-focused attention. Even if it looks just like you, you might be worried less about, you know, your mannerisms or putting on a nice shirt for the day or the food smudge that I probably actually have. Um, but avatars also carry stereotypes. Okay, so yeah, yeah, I just, I hinted at it here. Um, we know that both men and women, if they use a woman avatar compared to a man avatar in a context of competition, they'll do worse on a math test. They'll do worse in a video game. In my study, uh, one study, we had women play uh, with an avatar that, uh, well, so well, the first study, we actually had them play and we triggered stereotype threat by making them think about their opponent as being a male or a female. And they not only performed worse in the game when they thought their opponent was a male, so triggering a stereotype threat, they also uh, said that they thought men would be better in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, um, when they thought they were in the game context playing against a man. So what does this say? The argument that I've, tr I've tried to build up through multiple studies now is that Toxicity in gaming, especially gender toxicity, reinforces these stereotypes, not just about gaming, but about STEM fields writ large. And so we've got this vicious cycle kind of reinforcing um, some, of the, some of the inequities in gender and, and other, um, other social categories, most likely. But gender is the easiest one to study um, in gaming context. So we should care about gaming. We should care about this entertainment area if we're going to try to solve the problems writ large. All right, um, so here's a follow-up study. We just ran this, it's not published yet. Um, so don't hold me to everything, please. But a couple hundred undergrads, as we know, women reported higher Zoom fatigue. Perhaps uh, unsurprisingly, women reported much lower intent to use the metaverse. We had items like, I plan to use the metaverse, one to five scale, but, 
This is, a, this is an unbalanced triangle, two positives and a negative. But we have Zoom fatigue positively predicting metaverse intent. What do I mean by an unbalanced triangle? We would normally expect, you know, if a, a likes B and B likes C, then A likes C. If A doesn't like B, then A and B likes C, then A shouldn't like C. So we would always have two negatives together, not just one. But in this case, despite the fact that women have more Zoom fatigue and less intent to use the metaverse. The more Zoom fatigue you have, the more intent you have to use the metaverse, driven um, by men and women. And so what does that mean? Like maybe we can infer that people perceive the metaverse as an attractive alternative to video. Maybe there's this intuitive understanding that like, being in Zoom meetings is boring. Being in VR will keep my hands busy, will help me pay more attention to class, that kind of thing. Um, but this is speculation. This is a very early study. Um, and, and anecdotally, VR class is pretty exhausting. So I don't want to oversell this, but, uh, but I do just want to make the argument that potentially People already see this as, as an alternative. People will be willing to adopt it. And maybe we can reduce Zoom fatigue through, through the metaverse, through avatars. But uh, so what are, what are the future directions? Here's that common thread thing again. So the metaverse plus avatars, Proteus effect, and virtual meeting fatigue. Um, maybe we can figure out ways to, I guess, set up our classes maybe from a settings from a pedagogical perspective or from a technological perspective, like what literally, what are the user settings, 3D audio, avatar assignment, avatar customization guidelines, et cetera, that promote equity and inclusion. And uh, this is the main focus of my um, NSF work at the moment. Um, also, maybe we can increase efficiency in remote work. So big screens, uh, small laptops, sharing three-dimensional objects in the same space together. Um, maybe we can nudge users toward healthy and pro-social behaviors. We can use the Proteus effect. Uh, you know, you're in the, the fit avatar and you're, you know, eating healthier or exercising more. Potential concerns, there's always the other side of the sword. Uh, so data privacy, VR headsets track all of your movements. A lot of those things are health relevant. Maybe you have a health condition that you don't want the world or Facebook or whoever to know about, uh, but it's divulged by those, those behaviors, you know, your, the way your body's just moving. Um, digital virtual divides between the meta space and the meat space. So despite the fact that I seem to be a metaverse evangelist, especially in educational contexts, because I think it could promote equity. On the other hand, if the metaverse university is 30% of the price of regular tuition, then we end up with this kind of social class divide, the people who can afford to go to school in person, those who cannot, and maybe the better education is in person, especially if you need lab space or, or you need to write notes um, instead of just kind of being there in VR. So um, that's a concern. And lastly, nefarious nudges. Uh, essentially the Proteus effect, pushing you toward extremist views, wasteful behaviors by this thing. So this is pretty much the majority of my talk, but I'm gonna end with something fun. Are my kids close by? This is the fun part. Uh, Jeannie Lowe, yeah. bring them in, bring them in. All right, so as a, as a kid, my parents here can attest that I, I, well, I don't know if I was so performative, but I always really liked 
uh, rap and hip hop culture and music. And so as an adult, I decided to create nerdy raps to summarize some of my theoretical interests and research topics. Um, and so that's what I did. This is a Proteus recap. Is this gonna run? I gotta turn this down. All right. Please excuse this divergence. It might be odious. I hope I help you learn, yes, about the Proteus effect, yes, a phenomenon, which I've written many research papers on. And this nerdy song, the Proteus effect, is when your virtual self, yes, your avatar, changes how you think and act. And yes, that's bizarre. But replications we see in a diversity of contexts, e.g., taller avatars cause more aggressive negotiating, attractive avatars, more confident online dating, lighter skinned, darker skinned avatars, biocybestic, older avatars, more future investing, healthy size avatars, exercise proclivity, inventor avatars, more creativity, gendered avatars, self-stereotyping, antisocial avatars, negatively griping. The list goes on. Effect size is relatively strong for a media effect phenomenon. And if you want these details and stats, I know that there's a published meta-analysis. I wrote it, but let's discuss ethical implications, avatars for influence or persuasion. I call it avatarification, related to gamification, but potentially more efficacious. Virtual you is a significant cue to affect your self-perception and direct what you do. It's an opportunity that is ripe to abuse, to push you toward crap you likely shouldn't choose. So let's be careful with the virtual self. Researchers, focus on education and health. Don't let the power for, uh, to compel your clientele. Though I know inevitably technology is a double sort so we will definitely need to achieve new media literacies especially as avatars are increasingly ubiquitous so we must discuss what to trust just because it's virtual doesn't make it virtuous and i hope this rap was not superfluous and now you know the effects named proteus oh thank you thank you thank you <laughs> that was fun I, I mixed up a mixed up a couple lines there. I would say uh, this was my favorite product of my sabbatical a couple of years ago. So any opportunity I can to share it, I do. But um, thank you all so much. This was fun. All right, now the kids will be bored again. But let's ask some questions if you have any follow-ups. Please. Didn't just. Uh, skateboarded into class. Skateboarded into class with a twin in each arm when they were babies. Oh, yes, it is true. <laughs> yeah. Much to their mother's dismay. They don't remember. They don't remember. Yeah. So please. Oh, I have a question, but um, with the speculation you have about Zoom fatigue and attention use center. Yeah. Um, one again, this is very early speculation. I was thinking, the people who bought the Fatigue might naturally be more sensitive in general to like stimulation. So, am I gonna those people also more fatigued by Zoom as they are in VR? They find that fatigue is about the same, but benefit, etc. It 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 does. Um, so so cost might be the same, but reward might be higher. But we wouldn't. We really need to test that. I know Benji Lee at NTU um, is creating a virtual meeting fatigue scale. Um, so I assume he's going to do research on this topic. So it, it'll coming soon to a journal near you. Uh, okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. So maybe uh, it's more efficient or. Oh, um, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. That is a really good question. Um, novelty effect is huge. And I know Jeremy looked at weekly data, Jeremy Valenson looked at weekly data from his students over two 10-week courses now. And he did study the way that uh, the dissipation of certain behaviors, but I don't remember exactly what he found. But I can tell you, my students now, 12 weeks into the semester where we meet every week in VR, um, they still enjoy class and, and pay a lot of attention, but I think they get tired more easily. They still fidget. They don't fidget at the same level. It's less like, woo, I gotta try. Wow, I can make a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I can make 25 of them. I can make them huge, right? Like they're not doing all of that, um, but they're still drawing everywhere in 3D and they're being creative um, because I think in that space, they can keep it novel for themselves in a way for a long time. So. It'll be hard to study because it will continue continually be novel, but also there's like that's the nature of the medium. So I think, yeah, I think it's a tough one. Please, Erica. I was wondering if you saw like unicorns of joyful or playful interactions in your VR class. Like one example from ours was that the students made a few ways to pass notes. And the instructor kind of just let it happen because she wanted to see how it unfolded. Yeah. Like, using her attachments, picking up to like 3D model for cats, and then just moving the cats all the way across the classroom. <laughs> uh, if you saw any of that. That is so funny. Um, no, uh, not the note passing, but they're always trying out with the 3D pen. They, at first, you know, your first inclination is to write with it. So they were writing words. But then we, we were in a, an enclosed space. It was a gymnasium because we were talking about VR sports training that day. And one of my students just walked back and forth, dotting and dashing all the way through. And it created this amazing fabric that we were all a part of as we kind of walked through the space. Um, I don't I don't tone any of that down. I really like it because I think as long as it's not district. Oh, and I didn't I didn't actually show you this. We have a, a big mo a screen, a virtual screen that I throw up in the front of the room. And then before they jump into VR, they type in questions about the readings on this app called Slido, which is kind of like poll everywhere. And then I can bring that web page up so I can kind of get them to talk with me about whatever questions they have in those moments directed by what's in front. So as long as they don't get in the way of this artifact, which is really important for the class discussion, uh, I let them play and be creative and yeah. Passing notes though, I think Engage has sticky notes, but I don't know if there are digital cats that they can put them onto, but <laughs> we'll try that, that's cool. Yeah, like, very, uh, very similar question, like, how, uh, 
if I want to take lift, I do it in the three D space, but do it just for myself. Like, what kind of workers are already there? Is that that's a really interesting question. So I know in the space we're using for ICA is having a, does anyone go to ICA? You've heard of ICA? International Communication Association. Yeah. Um, so we have a digital artifacts exhibition. And of course, the the uh, leadership was like, Robbie, do this. I was like, okay, fine. So, uh, so it's a virtual environment. We're going to have Quest 2s that people can access. And you'll walk up to these art pieces that people have made. And uh, you can create a privacy bubble where audio is restrained just within that square. So it's not 3D spatial audio for everyone. Um, but when you first talked about privacy, that's initially what I thought of, like social privacy. But I also like... Uh, intrapersonal privacy, the idea of taking notes to yourself. And I haven't seen tools like that in Engage, in, in Spatial. No, no. But I imagine if you're in something like Immersed um, or, or uh, Facebook workspaces where you're on your computer and in VR and potentially with other people in that virtual environment, that's a user case where the affordances for Intrapersonal privacy, like I don't want to share this monitor with everyone else, but I do want to share this monitor, and I can see both, and I can take notes in either one, right? So um, that's probably already there. So I would look at Immerse. Check out Immerse if you're interested in that topic, please. Uh, I just have a follow-up for the Zoom fatigue study yeah. that I was thinking about. So I wonder, um, have you looked? Are there any studies about in-person fatigue, and if there's a gender difference with in-person fatigue? I don't remember. I don't really expect that to be in some of the theoretical work on Zoom fatigue, um, but I don't remember seeing it. In group here. I just, I'm thinking about this more. I'm thinking, well, um, I, I think negative self-focused attention is an interesting hypothesis, mm -hmm. but I also think that's an action, like for me in everyday life. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, so is is the inequity issue worse in Zoom, or maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's not as bad. I think my fatigue happened when the novelty effect wore off, mm. but I also think that I had reached an in-person fatigue level <laughs> by that point. Being in person is fatiguing. It really is. But we, absolutely. And we can measure it better in these digital environments. Um, in addition to thinking about fatigue as an equity issue, I'm also in, in our studies thinking about turn-taking. And we can definitely measure like just the amount of volume coming out of one microphone in Zoom in a way that we can't in a face-to-face -face meeting. And so, um, yeah, we should probably do more control, control group face-to-face -to, -face to uh, mediate it for this area of research. Go ahead. Yeah, so one of the things that I, I happen to remember, so I just looked it up, is that the fatigue in in-person for women is mediated by the proportion of women who are there, mm. which makes sense, right? Like when I was the only woman in my computer science classes, I was I was like, oh my God, show show nothing, right. you know, you are you are in danger here. Yeah, you're, um, yeah, you're always on alert. So I wonder if that's something that you could look at in terms of yeah. the gender composition of the Zoom meetings, in terms of who is present and who's perceived to be watching. Yeah, right? absolutely. I think that. There's there's potentially really interesting. There's a stuff great there. yeah theoretical tie into stereotype threat. That's mm -hmm. a that's a very common uh, mechanism that studies have used to operationalize stereotype threat. Yep. Like put you in a room yep. full of 
Yeah, that's right. And you could think about that, like, what is it the like 30% threshold, right? When more than 30% of a group is made up of a, of a, of a particular identity, then people stop seeing themselves as members of the identity group and start seeing themselves as individuals. Again, you'd stop feeling like, oh, I'm representing all women here. Right. So that could also be a really interesting way to design the study, whether or not that threshold is being triggered where people are, are self-perceiving as group members rather than self-perceiving as or trust that they will be perceived by others as individuals that's a great question yeah do you guys know side theory social identity de-individuation effects yeah that makes me think about um de-individuation seeing yourself as an individual and that really relates to avatars. Yeah, I, I look. I just think you should work with this. Yeah, on this. This, this is should, great. This, this is uh, great. This, we, 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 we think this is cool. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the theoretical foundation for the Proteus effect uh, as, as part of it, right? Exactly. Side theory. So You're it individuated right in the your, avatar. Yeah, it does. Favorite, uh, it does. Favorite thing. Please. I have a question about, you mentioned some work that shows that you can see some carryover effects that persist beyond the virtual experience. Yeah. I'm curious about cases where there could be a harmful contrast between the empowerment, for example, you feel as an avatar and what you experience in reality. Are there ways to bridge that gap? For example, there's work that shows in with fictional narratives, if you prime somebody with a character they identify with that they can feel empowered by, that gets to have an effect in their real life experience. Is there ways of either reminding people or priming them, or in some way, at least psychologically re-embodying an avatar in real life context that might sort of re-trigger that effect? So you don't have that contrast? That's interesting. Um, yeah, I think I've always thought about avid. We often get this question with the Proteus effect of like, how long does it last? And I think you're asking the next follow-up, the, be- the best follow-up question, which is how can we keep it going? Um, and even if you're not in the virtual environment, I think from my understanding of the theoretical kind of foundations for the Proteus effect, it's it's self-concept change. And that's not lasting if you're not reminded of it. But people spend a lot of time on their phones, right? We are constantly reminded of our virtual identities in these social media spaces. So you can imagine having an avatar that's persistent, not just in the virtual environment where I go to class, but then I I pop into my, um, I don't know, Instagram feed or Snapchat or TikTok, whatever the kids are using at, in those future days. Um, and my avatars is kind of persistent across the spaces and reminds me of whatever empowered experience I was having in VR to a lesser extent, probably because embodiment is lower. But I really, I, I think that's a cool idea. I hadn't really thought about it in the way you phrased it, like as the gap filling. Yeah, yeah, we should, please. Oh, please. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm actually really curious on the perspective in, in the environment where you're creating an avatar or your avatar is given to you or whatever, are there any things on the interaction side of what that avatar can do that rather than sort of just the embodiment of the physical appearance or something like that, that might actually also uh, affect how you feel and things? An example is I read a story that the Facebook, whatever workplace, like no one could frown. Like you couldn't frown in that environment. Like you're, none of the avatars would frown. Now, everyone, like, of course, like a funny news article and stuff, but it was interesting. Like, they've actually, the designers have said, like, you cannot have a frown as an interaction. In a way, as designers of these 
environments, we can dictate what interactions you can and can't have. So I guess it's like a, I'm curious, like from an interactivity perspective, is there anything on a connected party versus just embodiment and visual appearance? That is that's such a funny and fascinating um, anecdote to connect to this idea. I haven't seen any work on this, um, but you could like that's that's a ripe area for a really interesting research study. Around like how you move or something like that. I don't know. There's other interactive components. Interactive and 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 emotive um, components, especially because that's like the the core of social interaction in these spaces is the emotional. Uh, connection you have with people and how you express to them. And Facebook has been called the happiest place on earth long before, <laughs> right? Because people would only post good things about themselves. Um, and so issues of social comparison and interactivity there, like maybe we could take it from that that flat 2D context and use a metaphor for the Proteus effect. I, I like that idea a lot. Thanks. Yeah, I'll log that one. All right. Yeah, right. I, I think we are just about at time. So I'm going to say uh, thank you so much for thank being here, so Robbie. Much. This was amazing. You guys were a really fun, fun group to speak with. I really appreciate it. And um, okay, Zoomers, it was nice to meet you too. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the talk. That was a wonderful appearance from our guest, me. <laughs> or or not. I, uh, I hope you liked it. And I hope that you Forgive me for not doing a real podcast episode here. Thanks so much to Jessica Hammer for hosting me there at Carnegie Mellon and of course the entire Human Computer Interaction Institute. And I look forward to hearing you more in the future. I mean, you hearing me. Thank you, SpartyCast listener.